Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alexian Taffy. Thanks so much. Um, so yeah, what we're going to do today is sort of interview each other a bit. And we're going to start by saying a bit more about ourselves and what we're going to cover. We have actually just getting to the end of a writing retreat, writing our most recent book, which is going to be How to Understand Your Sexuality. Um, so we're really excited about that, but we're not going to talk about that because no. um, that's not out for another year or so. <laughs> Do you want to say what we are going to talk about, Alex? Absolutely. We are going to talk about um, how to approach care including self-care from a non-binary uh, perspective. And I say self-care with a little bit of caution because I feel like that word has been thrown around so much. Um, and we are really looking at care in a slightly different way from a trauma-informed perspective and also taking this non-binary approach that we'll say more about. Um, and we've known each other for a long time. Now I think it's uh, 17 years since we met, just gone past 17 years this summer. And we've been yeah. writing together for the last three, four years. I think our first writing retreat, mm. I mean, proper, like we'd written chapters, but like books. <laughs> yeah, full books. Yeah, <laughs> full we, books. Do, we just done the odd paper and chapter before that, but proper, the full books. Yeah. Whatever that means. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. um, mm. But um, And I think in terms of who we are, as well as being people who do work with other folks as therapists and mentors and as others, I, I don't want to speak for both of us, but I think we're pretty committed to our own healing journey. And so yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of weaving of both our work, but why we consider this particularly important on a personal level as well. Yeah. So the book that we're talking about today is called Hell Yeah, Self-Care. And that comes out by Jessica Kingsley in January next yes. year. Um, but we wrote it in Barcelona, actually, around this time mm -hmm. last year when we were together. And at the moment, we're not together. I'm in the UK and Alex is over in Minneapolis in the US. Um, so, yeah, if you're if you like this, there is actually a zine on my website called Hell Yeah Self-Care that you can already download. But that's like a really tiny version of like what we expanded into the book and then bringing a lot of Alex's um, systemic and somatic expertise um, together. Because that that's why, like, as soon as I heard about the embodiment conference, I was like, can we do something together? Because you're really the somatic embodiment part of our teamwork, I reckon. <laughs> I feel the pressure. Having said yeah. that, given that I'm the somatic uh, part of our dynamic duo, I wonder if before getting started with mm. interviewing one another, we can just take a minute to breathe. I feel, I don't know about you all, but sometimes we kind of rush through our day, especially for me, especially with everything happening in, on my computer. I don't even take breaks sometimes, even though I should. So let's just take a minute to breathe. Ah, and arrive, um, just in case you've been rushing through your day, whether it's morning, evening, night, whatever time of day it is where you are. It's amazing to see people from all over the place. And as you breathe, just see if you can uh, relax a little bit more into whatever support is underneath you. You know, maybe it's a chair, maybe it's the ground, maybe it's your bed. Just relax a little bit more and let yourself be held by that support, by the earth and gravity. Hmm. And I personally want to take a moment to breathe into connection with the earth underneath us, with land. Um, here the season is turning again and we had our first snow where I am. So acknowledging the changing of the season acknowledging that I'm on uh, Dakota and a little bit north of here on Ishinabe lands, um, currently known as Minneapolis, Minnesota, and all the complex history that I'm in as a recently, uh, as a recent immigrant. I'm just breathing into that. 
Then maybe just one more breath for all the people who've come before us who've made this work possible. We're not the first ones to talk about those ideas and we've drawn from such an amazing body of work and and so those ancestors of writing and of care and of somatic practices, let's just take a moment to connect to the ancestral web. Hmm. You know, we're not the first to be doing this work and I sure hope we're not the last. Hmm. And then one more breath for ourselves. Ah, being here in this body, doing this work today, listening to one another. Um, just taking a moment maybe even to look around where you are and if there is something that feels pleasant or comforting, just take a moment to connect with that. So welcome, welcome. It's so nice to take a moment to breathe with you all. As MJ said, we're going to kind of interviewer, interview each other. Um, and I think I'm, I'm getting started with the first question for you, MJ, <laughs> if that's okay. And, um, yeah. you know, this, I feel better about answering it now we've done that. Thank you. Right. I'm always, I do <laughs> yeah. this all the time now. I'm like, yeah. I need to breathe and probably other people do first, right? Body first. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're talking about today. How do we embody this non-binary approach to self-care? So, so why self-care and um, why now, right? Why does it feel so vital to talk about self-care right now? Well, I suppose I was so grateful to have written this book with you in Barcelona just before 2020 hit because it hit me with a number of really challenging personal things. Um, and then obviously the pandemic hitting but against the background of climate crisis already. And then we had the Black Lives Matter uprising over the summer. So there's just so much going on. And then for us in the UK, we've got Brexit unfolding even during this pandemic crisis. You've got the US elections over there now and so much uncertainty, so much background level of trauma going on. So I, I suppose I feel like self-care is vital right now because we need to be really like, really kind and honest with ourselves and with each other. Um, and that needs that kind of cradle of kindness that we talked about a lot in the book, the cradle of kind of self-care, um, both in order to be able to be kind enough to ourselves and compassionate enough with others, and also to be honest with ourselves about what's going on in the world and what capacities we have to offer anything, um, what we need for ourselves, where our boundaries are. And I suppose I feel like for me, there's been the, the background level of trauma just means a lot of people are knocking up against each other a lot more. Lockdown has meant this is something I've blogged about quite a bit. Like lockdown has meant some of us being isolated alone, which brings one set of real challenges because you're right up against yourself day after day. You just get to see all of your stuff playing out like without any filter. Um, but for other folks, they've been locked in with other people mm. and that's its own different challenge of like rubbing up against each other and not being able to necessarily get away or do the kinds of supportive things you might be able to do. So I just feel like we've all probably got some level of background trauma, but it's it's just really up at the moment. So having this really trauma-informed understanding of self-care and being able to practice self-care is just a kind of vital buffer and a and vital for being honest with ourselves about what's going on for ourselves and able to communicate that more to others. I love that you talked mm. about kindness and how vital it is. And I wonder if I can ask you a follow-up question about what we mean by kindness because I know that when yes. we say kindness we're not saying niceness and and maybe I'm biased because I live in Minnesota and I I love where Minnesota's I live. nice yeah but the Minnesota nice it's uh it's a uh, uh kind of scary because right people can be nice on the surface and racist transphobic underneath you know that surface yeah. so you can go through your day thinking that everybody's okay, but actually if you, especially if you have a marginalized identity or experience, you know that underneath that niceness, that doesn't mean there's kindness. So I wonder if you can say a little bit more about the kindness mm. piece. 
I mean, I feel like it's that's why I always say kindness and honesty, because mm-hmm. I feel like kindness without honesty isn't really kind. It is more nice, you know, this performative, yes. just trying to, you know, just trying to get people to approve of you and like you. So that's why you need this deep kindness for yourself to actually be able to be honest with yourself because without the kindness it's really hard to see what you do and acknowledge it and recognize the impact that it can have Mm. um so but also honesty without kindness isn't really honest you know because if you're just honest with people in that blunt like I'm going to tell them what I think you're you're not being honest that you can probably do exactly those same things yourself you know so to be really honest with yourself and others needs the kindness to recognize like we can all do this stuff especially when we're traumatized so it's kind of that piece about assuming that you know if people aren't doing well something's going on for them or they all these wider cultures and systems that they're part of are kind of playing out through them to sort of get in a way it gets away from the personalizing it Mm. um like to to really understand why people are where they are I love that. And I think that's so true. And it's also so complex, right? Because one of the things I often Mm. talk about is how trauma can make us really self-centered because when we are in survival mode, we have to center ourselves. And so it can be really hard to be kind when we're in a trauma response. So for me, the, the only other piece I would add that for me, kindness and honesty is also about oh, let's be aware of what's going on in the world and why might this person or people might be coming at me in a certain way that doesn't feel kind. But actually, mm-hmm. if I take the big picture under consideration, it makes a lot of sense, right? That that yeah. there might be something that's coming at me, not in the kindest way, and also um, having that honesty to look at the big picture, right? It's this interplay yeah. between the individual and the systemic And for yourself, having that, if you have that kind of awareness of like, this is what it looks like for me when I'm going into a trauma response, either because someone's come out of me like that or or from some other reason, it's like, then you can refrain, you know, and and say, I'm not ready and take the time you need, Um, which I guess gets us into the next question for you, which is Mm. obviously being the somatic um, practitioner and the theme of the embodiment of this conference. What what do we mean by embodied self-care? Like, and how Mm. did we weave that into the book? Yeah, that is a great question. I mean, <laughs> can we do any self-care that's not embodied? Like even our, our language fails us, right? It's like, it's so hard. We we talk about ourselves as if mind and body were separate. And I guess that makes mm-hmm. sense in the context of Western dominant discourses. Um, and, you know, because we've had all this idea of mind and body as separate as since Descartes, you know, and really when we think about who, benefits and maybe even who profits under neocolonial capitalism from the separation of mind and body, really the separation of mind and body is in the interest of colonialism, patriarchy, capitalism, kind of all of those kind of uh, larger oppressive forces. And, um, you know, I would say that kind of the ongoing Salah colonial project is really at the root uh, of some of this um, um, perpetuation of the separation between body and mind. So I'm going to get a little heady for a moment. But if we see the mind and body as separate and we see the mind as superior to the body, then we can do things like think that we can own land and, you know, that we can take ownership of this body that we live on, that is the body of the good green earth, right? And then it means that some bodies maybe can be seen as inferior to others and some bodies as superiors, which is where you get all the anti-blackness, which, you know, has existed for a long time and that some people are really starting to see how it plays out in all systems. Some white people are beginning to see that. And um, really, when we separate the mind and the body, you know, this uh, so, so much oppression becomes possible, right? It's not just about the industrial revolution. It's also about how um, people uh, here in what we now call the U.S. were profiteering from slavery to build this country, right? Um, and mm. if we, oh, I love that comment in the chat, if we can separate, we can objectify. Absolutely. Yeah. That is absolutely what I'm trying to say, right? Whether, um, yes, we, I could talk about this for a long time. If you want to know about more about what I think about this. Oh, look, self-promotion moment. <laughs> Gender trauma. There's a book that just came out. I am terrible at self-promotion, so I've been told I need to do that. Well done. It's an amazing book. Yeah. So there's a book. I've written all about how the doctrine of discovery is also linked to the rigid gender binary. If you want to know all about that, uh, please read it and tell me what you think. 
But going back to your question, really what mm. happens is then we can see our body as a commodity, right? If our body is inferior to the mind, it's a commodity that we can exploit, just like we can exploit the land, just like we can exploit other people. We can exploit ourselves, right? And yeah. so how can we not talk about self-care without talking about the body? Because we really live in a dominant kind of neocolonial capitalist society, at least where we both live, where um we really are going to buy more if we see the body as a commodity. We're going to push ourselves harder to produce mm. more, right? We're going to be more productive and we're going to keep perpetuating this ideas of separation between body and mind. And, um, you know, in, in our recent book that we're writing now, I don't understand your sexuality. We're using uh, this word body mind, which is really from disability study. Dr. Sami Shok has got a great book on body mind as well and race. Um, and body mind is really challenges the separation and highlights that the body and mind are in a dynamic relationship with one another. And as a somatic practitioner, I know that, right? Our whole field is based well, as well as appropriating a good chunk of stuff from many indigenous healing traditions. It's also based on interpersonal neurobiology. That's kind of rediscovering that wisdom from a different perspective. And so, mm -hmm. When we're talking about body-mind, we're really taking care of our whole self, right? We cannot care for the land, each other, and ourselves if we're not caring for the whole, right? And so in the book, mm. for example, in uh, in all of our books, including um, the self-care book, there's like slow down pages, there are exercises, and also acknowledging that embodiment is not easy because of all this history of oppression, right? This history mm. of separation, oppression, we have deep, deep systemic wounds. And so some of the things we do in the book about self-care is also really naming how we're impacted by this larger system, especially if we have marginalized identities and experiences, because so often we internalize and individualize systemic problems where we're like, oh, I'm not taking care of myself enough or, um, you know, I'm not doing enough self-care. How many times we might have thought or said I'm not doing enough self-care when actually what we're trying to do is survive under capitalism in a system that doesn't allow enough time and resources to care for ourselves and one another. And where even very basic things like health and education might be things that we have to pay for because they're not being provided on a community level, right? And and I know we mm. really problematize also the concept of self-care even in the book because of this whole challenging of the idea of self that we'll talk about in a moment. Sorry, that was a lot. Obviously, that was great. The caffeine and I guess, kicked in. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the body mind, you know, you put caffeine in the body mind and something happens. But yeah, yeah um, that was awesome. I agree with the chat. <laughs> but um, I was thinking, like, we also talk a lot in the, in the book about staying with feelings, right? And mm. um, it makes me think, I think um, Gabor Mate was talking at this conference, right? And this stuff about how um we're at so much more at risk of mental and physical health problems if we can't know our needs if we can't yes. know our boundaries and if we can't feel our feelings like that's what i really get from his work and so we talk a lot in the book about like given that we're probably trained you know in this culture but often in our families due to intergenerational mm. trauma which is something you talk a lot about then you know it's just really hard and for me it's been really hard my whole life I wouldn't say I have been very embodied you know it's all been in the head and so I'm really learning this piece about how do we stay with feelings how do we learn when we're yes no or maybe how do we articulate our boundaries and our needs right so all of that requires the somatic and the embodied piece Right. I mean, I wouldn't know anything about staying in the head after having gone to the doctrine of discovery to talk about the body as commodity. But yes, um, I remember <laughs> I remembered my very first somatic training where a somatic practitioner, we were doing a practice session, looked at me and this was a, an experienced somatic practitioner and going, so sometimes we dissociate in our prefrontal cortex, so, you know, for people really intellectualized. So we want to watch for that. And I was like, Damn, 10 minutes and you see me, you see me <laughs> yeah. like I've, I've been with the same therapist for over a decade. I don't think she pointed it quite that, you know, and um, that, that sharply. And that's a thing that mm. when we go to the body, we know what we need, but we cannot go to the body if we've never been taught how to go to the body. Right. Yeah. <sighs> so much, so, so, so much feel so many feelings about this topic. 
So, but I, I want to talk about all the other things we want to talk about. Um, so we don't just talk about the body in our books, right? Because mm. we take all the systems into uh, account, there are other themes that we talk about a lot, which we're also very passionate about, which are gender, sex and sexuality, and relationship expansiveness. Like we care so much about gender, sex and sexuality, relationships, disability, like all this kind of mm. big um, ideas. How do they relate to self-care, MJ? What do they all have to do with self-care? Yeah, well, I guess it's sort of like a thread through all our books in a way. Hell yeah, self-care is that one book that's just about everything. Mm. Most of our other books focus on gender or sexuality or relationships. So we did this book, I'm going to plug, How to Understand Your Gender. Jules Shields, amazing cover there. Um, and then we're doing this whole series now. So it's How to Understand Your Gender. Then we're doing sexuality at the moment. And then we also do um, doing relationships in a couple of years, hopefully. Um <laughs> and I guess we, we see it all as like completely intermingled, right? Because um, the, I guess the norms of gender and sexuality and relationships are part of what does so much damage to people. And it does a lot of damage whether people are trying to rigidly adhere to those norms and try to be very, you know, a real man or a real woman or trying to be very heteronormative or trying to do relationships in a particular way. But it also obviously really harms those who are marginalized and oppressed in relation to their gender, sexuality and relationship. Um, so part of this whole piece of like the self-care book is this, it's not individualized self-care which is the real problem with what's kind of happened to self-care. Similar to what's happened with mindfulness, it becomes this very individual tools to like fix yourself rather than recognizing that it really is the systems and structures that harm us um, and that those need to change. And so what we can do in a, I mean, I've called them anti-self-help books, the kind of books that we write rather than self-help books, because it's much more about alerting people to these cultural messages and the systems and structures that surround us and how to survive in those worlds and also to how, how to create their own systems and structures of support to kind of be a buffer against so much of that toxicity um, rather than giving people these very individualized kind of techniques and tools which seems, you know, really problematic because it kind of, it's that whole kind of cult, wider cultural idea that it's something wrong with you that needs fixing rather than something wrong with the world out there. Does that make sense? It does make so much sense. And and what strikes me as I'm listening to you is just how relational this approach is. And I know that when you name like, and then we're doing a relationship book at the moment of like, end to forehead, like, oh my God, that is going to be probably the hardest book we've ever written. I, I think we've talked about that. Yeah. And, you know, when I bring it back to this, in, in a way, I'm thinking about how relational this approach is and how challenging it can be to be relational in the context of all this, um, you know, in the context of all this big stories that we have in the world about how our bodies are gendered, how our bodies are sexualized, racialized, and then try to relate to each other. Um, it feels really challenging. How, and I, I don't know, this is a question, I'm going to go off screen, but I'm really curious about whether you have some thoughts about how that impacts our capacity to care for ourselves and one another a little bit as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, it comes back to this sort of objectifying piece, doesn't it, of like people are being, it's very us and them, like who, who agrees with me and who doesn't, who's doing this in the right way and who's doing this in the wrong way. And then it's also non-consensual, you know, the kind of um, structures you were referring to uh, before they really rely on non-consensual treatment, as you said, treating some bodies as inferior to others, and they rely and cap neoliberal capitalism relies on us non-consensually treating treating ourselves in order to produce more all the time, and to sort of monitor ourselves all the time. You know, it's it's based on consuming more and more and more, right? So you have to get people to want to consume more and more and more. And how's that done by encouraging people to monitor themselves, compare themselves to others, judge themselves? And I feel like that's just all ramped up under the pandemic as well as a real encouragement to shame people in relation to how they're behaving. Um, again, to separate and to see this group as bad and this group as good or this individual as bad and this as good. So it's, it's really about, yeah, the challenging of relating under all these conditions um, is huge. But it's about like, yeah, how can we, how can we relate differently 
in that kind and honest way that we were talking about before? How can we do that? And how can we see the problem as these messages and these systems rather than the problem as either it's my fault or it's that other individual's fault? Absolutely. Mm. You know, I'm thinking about the issue of taking care of children who are being schooled at home Mm. at the moment and trying to work and how that can become like, is this an issue, you know, so much falls on folks who are assigned female at birth in terms of house labor and is this an issue on an individual family level or is this an issue of a structure the structure of capitalism that we live under Mm. the structure of gender the structures of the patriarchy and so it's so much bigger than what's going on in one family in one household right but Mm. i i I would love for you you also mentioned consent which is so key to a lot of the work we do um, and often people haven't come across the idea of self-consent. In a way, you know, a relationship with ourselves is one of the foundational relationships in our lives. And can you say a little bit more about self-consent and how that plays out in when we're talking about embodied self-care? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's the big work I've been doing this year. I've been blogging quite a lot about it is really to reach a position of better self-consent. You know, with myself and I, again I think we're trained out of it you know not just in the obvious ways of like kids are encouraged to have touch that they don't want and they're encouraged they have to do things that they don't want to do they're not really they're not really encouraged to tune into their feelings mm-hmm. they're encouraged to override them is self-consent is about you know learning how to tune into yourself and again this you know where is your yes no and maybe like where are your boundaries where are your needs how can you then How can you know who's safe enough to articulate those with? Um, Consent for me is about feeling free enough and safe enough to bring yourself to any encounter Mm -hmm. or any interaction. And it's so it's self-consent is learning again on a really embodied level. Like, what does it feel like when I feel safe enough and free enough? What does it learn? What does it feel like when I don't? Um, And um, yeah, like I'm doing it around anything. I think that's where mindfulness does come in is that like the pause even like just just sitting for a moment between tasks you can learn then to really like check in like what do I feel up for doing next or what do I not rather than just pushing through pushing through um but right up to really big questions like you know do I have a relationship with this person or not um it's sort of like the whole spectrum but of just like really tuning in and I guess that's where it relates to trauma so I'd you know the question I throw back to you is like well given though that we're all traumatized to some level and some of us quite a lot that's what make that's what really gets in the way of being able to do the self-consent and and as you said often to be kind with others it's really hard when you're traumatized so how do you bring in the trauma informed approach there right what a great question how can i not bring the trauma-informed approach i love that somebody in the chat said we treat ourselves the way we were treated as children and that is so true you know we know more and more how easily trauma is passed down within the family and sometimes Mm. even when people cannot identify like a big t trauma i think that sometimes when people think about trauma it's like well nobody beat me and nobody abused me you know and and some of us have had those experiences um right but trauma is not just those things that might be much more apparent trauma is also not getting what we need as we grow up right when we come into the world as this little beings that have no nervous system containment we need to be scaffolded by our caregivers into nervous system regulation, you know, into being able, you talked about sitting with feelings. Well, we can only sit with Mm. feelings if feelings don't feel so overwhelmed that we feel we might literally die if um, the feelings are like too big, right? Exactly. There's like large T trauma, small T trauma, and it's all trauma. And sometimes my clients say, oh, Alex, do you, so does everybody have trauma? You talk about trauma all the time. And I'm like, how is it possible under ongoing silo colonial patriarchal racist white supremacist states not to be traumatized right mm-hmm. even the place where i live was literally founded on trauma and exploitation so of course everybody's traumatized right and then that trauma that big kind of historical cultural social trauma trickles down through our families right in mm-hmm. in lots of different ways and sometimes we might not be able to pinpoint something that has happened to us or something that has happened to our parents. But then as you kind of, um, you know, brush away the first layer, it becomes so apparent what what might have happened. And sometimes it is this bigger cultural, historical and social traumas and the way they've trickled down are much more subtle. 
Um, so it doesn't have to be this like single incident, but it's, it's, it's about our nervous system and not just our individual nervous system, but our collective nervous system, right? So there are people mm. like Tadaozumi, for example, that are doing work around cultural somatics. Um, mm. and, uh, and I think that that's so important to think about that larger kind of trauma, which is where I will slowly pass over the screen my book again. Look at me twice. <laughs> Twice Twice in one one. <laughs> I, I am totally buying into neo-colonial liberal capitalism because I need to also survive under capitalism right now. I mean, for our Yeah, but long. if you read the book, then you'll want to dismantle it. So that's it's, the whole point. Right, of, that's what yeah. I think too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Especially if you're a therapist or a counselor or a coach, this, yeah. this book is really um, for educators, counselor, coaches, therapists. But they, you know, going back, and it is all about this, the trauma of a rigid gender binary and how it impacts everybody. Um, but in terms of like practically, how does this apply to our book? How does this apply to our practice as well? If we're working with clients is we really need to be, you know, we've done our best in our books to always be mindful of both individual and collective trauma, of yeah. being mindful of um, not assuming that uh, people with marginalized identities and experiences can ever come to a place of safety. I know when I started to do my somatic training, that was one of the things I was a little, I, I knew that uh, what I was going in was not a social justice environment. But one of the things that was frustrating was really to think about the fact that um, there was this assumption that there would be a place of safety, that my body could know safety, mm. you know, and if we have marginalized identities and experiences, how can our body ever know safety in the current condition, right? Um, and, and for some bodies even more so, you know, I have the privilege mm. of living in white skin and benefiting from white supremacy. And so for bodies who don't have that privilege, um, you know, again, how is safety ever possible? And I think more and more people are waking up to that. And so both in our in our books and our work, you know, we want to be mindful of that. We want to be mindful of naming that, not assuming safety, um, and also not assuming that everybody is a resource they need to do this work. Because mm -hmm. of all these wounds, of all this large system, so many of our resources have been taken away. And not just material financial resources, even though systemic poverty is absolutely an issue um, for many populations and for many of us, it's not just about systemic poverty, it's also about resources such as language, culture, belonging, right? Ancestors, mm. ancestral relationship, um, relationship with indigeneity to land, right? All of those things have been severed by those large system impact us. And I, I do think that we try to have some awareness of this um, in our books. And we also, you know, I definitely try to bring that awareness to my individual work. And for me, that's also what it means to be trauma-informed, not just thinking trauma lives in the body on an individual level. Yes, it does. And mm -hmm. trauma also lives in our collective soma, soma right? Of, when I talk about gender, for example, I talk about how in some ways we're all constricted when it comes to gender, because if we expand, we are so severely punished on a collective yeah. level, right? Oof. So, so both end. And talking about both end, I'm kind of I'm aware of time, and I know that we want to cover yeah. a couple more things. Talking about both end, one of the ideas that it's increasingly um, becoming more apparent and coming to the surface in the books, and and in Hell Yeah Self Care, we have the whole section about being plural and plurality. And you write a lot about plurality plurality nowadays, um, John. Um, can mm. you? Let's talk about that a little bit more. Like we don't really necessarily think about the self as an individual uh, kind mm. of phenomenon. but and, and for some of us, that's just not the case at all. So, yes, tell us more about plurality. <laughs> how does it impact self or selves care if we don't have yeah. this one self? Well, I guess it's one of our, in a way, like one of our non-binary approaches is getting beyond this kind of individual self to this kind of idea of multiple selves um and i think maybe this will be our last um because we've only got like four minutes left before we take some questions although apparently we have no questions so we can keep going um oh, we know we got chat. one we got oh, one, we got one? Okay, <laughs> yeah okay, yeah okay. So, 
So yeah, I'll just say a little bit because it follows on really nicely from what you were saying about individual trauma, particularly the trauma of childhood of not having your emotions regulated or contained, mm. which is definitely my experience. You know, just there was not that language, there was not that understanding in my parents' generation. You know, it was very much like emotion, bad, you know, negative emotions are bad. Mm. We need to get rid of them. You know, that was literally the understanding that was there in the wider culture and that was there in our family. Um, so really the work I've been doing around plurality has been a lot about different sides of me holding different feelings. Or you could say I'm really influenced by Janina Fisher's work, yeah. who thinks about it as different sides holding the different trauma the different trauma patterns. Yes. So people talk about fight, flight, freeze, fawn. Sometimes they talk about attach as one as well. And I really relate to that. So I have different sides of me who really, you know, they feel like different parts that hold the shame, that hold the fear, that hold the real yearning for connection, that hold anger and that hold a kind of like trapped feeling. So a lot of my work of this embodied work of staying with the feelings and learning how to self-regulate or self-contain or self-attune has been about being able to separate, as Janina Fisher describes in, in her excellent book of like separate a kind of more parental part. Yes, yeah, Janina draws on Richard Schwartz's yes. internal family systems model. So yeah, but you can also read the so many different authors who talk about plurality yes. like uh, John Rowan and Helen Sidrasone and like there's, there's lots of different so I've been trying to weave together all these different approaches um, plus there's also kind of in terms of mental health survivors like there's a lot of people reclaiming terms like multiple personality and uh, dissociative identity and seeing those as like something to reclaim rather than medicalize and pathologize so there's lots of different literatures that you can draw on for this but I think Janina Fisher's book was the one that claimed closest to my lived experiences that which is that it's so helpful to have this kind of adult or parental part who can hold the part that's struggling the part that's feeling shame or the overwhelming feelings that you were describing which has definitely been my lived experience of just this utterly overwhelming rush of feeling but now I can hold a part that's having it and really hear them and hear their needs and start to learn like how to have those feelings in a way that isn't so overwhelming and is actually I can see oh this now has some benefits if I can hold the anger without it overwhelming me. I can do boundaries. I can do self-protection. If I can hold fear, I can learn, okay, this is telling me something that I need to take attention, you know, pay attention to, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, so yes, this is so great. And I'm also aware that we have some question. And, yeah, let's uh, answer questions. Do, let's, do you want to ask them, Oksana, or do, yeah. how do we do this? Mm-hmm. Um, I, yes, we, we do. Yeah. I can, I can see the question and answer. Shall I, shall I go with it? Yeah, go for it. Mm-hmm. All right. So Megjan, I'll read the question. Do you have any practical ideas or somatic practices for helping people to deal with the different ways oppressive structures, such as heterosexism, transphobia, and so on? show up in their queer and polyam relationships. For example, different structures influencing partners and their past in different ways, leading to conflict and trauma activation in the present. Mm. Um, Do you you want me to go or do you want to go? Where where are you at, McDonald? I'm trying to see you and the questions and the screen all at the same time. (laughs) I mean, I think for me, I think it's definitely so helpful to do that normalizing piece of like, we're all under these structures. So we are all going to have internalized all of the isms, all of the phobias, right? Um, so, but having some time, like when you're in relation with others, when you're in close relation to like do some of that mapping of like, what was your background? Like we do a lot of this in our books, like what are the yes. cultural messages around you growing up? What was your community? What was your family? What is it now? And, you know, like opening that up for a discussion when you're not right in it. So rather than, when you're you know in that actual conflict and that can lift some of the the shame around it and just recognize that we all have this and we all have areas we need to be working on more than others but I don't know if you want to add something from the more somatic part yeah I'm going to follow up from what you were talking about actually to highlight the work also of Sophia Graham who's got this great blog Love Uncommon and uh, Sophia does talk about for example when you're not in conflict to make agreements about 
how do you want to show up in conflict so that there are real agreements in your relationships about how to show up in conflict. And somebody in the chat had also talked about how anger is not seen as acceptable, which is so in um, kind mm. of um, different white Western dominant cultures. And I think that's very true for Anglo culture. I remember moving from Italy to the UK when I was in my early 20s and being seen as a very aggressive and very outgoing when you know, up to like the day before when I was in Italy, I was like quiet and soft-spoken and introverted. And all of a sudden I was seen as like this aggressor. And I'm like, what is even happening mm -hmm. right now? You know, those messages are so culturally specific. And so doing that work, especially in polyamorous relationship or queer families, um, can really help us see that we might be coming from different places. And then in terms of kind of uh, so practical ideas, as well as kind of go to Love Uncommon and look at this conflict agreements ideas that Sophia has, but also really working on our own self-soothing, grounding. You know, I've become much more mm. outspoken as being somebody who lives with complex PTSD myself, as well as working with clients who have complex PTSD. Um, and I know that for me, some of the somatic practices that are like really foundational are, um, you know, am I taking care of myself? Going back to basics is something that my clients hear a lot from me. You know, somatic practices are not just this like, let's tap ourselves and let's breathe and let's voo, mm -hmm. which I love all of those. And uh, we can talk about those if we had like another hour, but it's also Am I um, doing my best to like get some sleep, drink enough water, eat regularly, like take care of myself? What's getting in the way of taking care of myself? Uh, and how much capacity do I really have given how impacted I am by these oppressive structures to be in relationship with myself and others? Uh, but then so all this like so soothing, grounding, oriented techniques, uh, which we don't have time to go in a lot of depth. Uh, right now, but I'm always happy to talk with people about um, are so important and really thinking about um, what happens when we feel activated, really getting yeah. to know our own activation so that then um, and communicate that with our partners so they can see that and if we need support from them so that we can be clear um, what kind of support um um, we want from them. Sorry, I've seen a comment that says, please have one more hour. I know, I feel like we should have one hour <laughs> well, to Sophia talk about got, this. <laughs> and again, Love Uncommon, I've put it in the chat, yes. but Love Uncommon, like the things she's been writing about recently has been, how do you take a time out? You know, like when yes. you have got activated, how do you notice? How do you communicate to that partner? How can you agree beforehand that timeouts are important? It's really good. So yeah, as well as hopefully the Hell, Hell Yeah Self-Care book will be helpful for people on this, but also... Um, love uncommon. Somebody's Absolutely. just asked what what makes our approach non-binary. Yes, I, I thought like we, we should, should go lead to that. that question. Let's do um, it. This was our book that we wrote already about the non-binary approach. Life yes. isn't binary, and I feel like two of the things that make it non-binary we have already touched on, which was mind body, right? Seeing that as mind body rather mm. than the, the mind and body separately. That's one way it's non-binary. Another way it's non-binary is the plurality piece. So rather than seeing like just self and other as individual units, it's like seeing everybody as potentially multiplicitous. Um, but do you want to say a bit more about what makes our approach non-binary as well as we are both non-binary I guess yeah. that's one thing we're both non-binary and we think all things non-binary are awesome but um <laughs> you know beyond that I think the other thing uh you know obviously we have not invented the non-binary approach nobody has a non-dually I want to be real clear on that non-dualistic yeah. approaches have existed for well over a thousand years in many Asian cultures and in fact many of the non-dualistic ideas uh, in some Asian cultures such as Taoism really underpin a lot of somatic practices so this is not new and things like mindfulness and like I said kind of even modern somatic approaches are really based on this idea. I think one of the things that makes our work non-binary is really focusing on trauma and if we think about trauma and now with trauma we often see this all or nothing patterns. Well, my clients see me do this with my hands all the time. One hand goes from one hand to the other um, because all or nothing thinking and trauma patterns show up in our lives every day in a million ways. Kind of goes back to the yeah. question as well that was asked earlier in terms of what do you find most helpful? Actually, it is challenging mm -hmm. kind of this polarized, extreme way of thinking. 
because when yeah, we like are, that person was safer now they're dangerous you I exactly right but i think that you're wrong you're good you're bad yeah uh, you're good you're bad and also i'm good or bad i'm good this bad, is the yeah. right or wrong way this is what i should or shouldn't do right this kind of with this uh, polarizal or nothing thinking there cannot be any nuance and there cannot be any mm-hmm. compassion and ultimately there can also be no relationship we cannot all or nothing trauma patterns are really about survival and we cannot be in relationship when we are in survival mode right there's um mm-hmm. to have a little geek moment i've really been getting into the series 100 on netflix and i won't spoiler it but really one of the big themes is who is with us and who is the other, right? And now when we're in survi- extreme survival situations, we cannot really relate to humanity. But also if it's like my family, my people, other people, that's not going to help us survive collectively either, right? Mm. So a non-binary approach is foundational, I think, to that kindness and honesty that you were talking about at the beginning. It's foundational mm. to challenge the separation between body and mind is also foundational to challenge the separation between self and other, right? Often when we're in a trauma survival response, we think either my needs can be met or somebody else's needs can be met. You know, it's this scarcity mentality. And so approaching self-care in a non-binary way is also saying there is no self-care, other care. There is care. There is community care. There is interdependent care. You know, going back to to those ideas that have never went away for many indigenous Mm -hmm. cultures and other cultures, that there is not the separation between self and other, between self and community, um, but that this both end approach and really bringing it to life uh, much more. And again, like... I'm aware that we have more questions and I could say I want to just tag but, a little yeah. bit onto that because I it. think it relates to the, the plural piece as well. And a lot of mm-hmm. what we've been saying is I think that capitalism and developmental trauma and how those come together, they make a lot of us like become this, this binary, which is basically we believe really fundamentally we're bad and we try to hide that and push it down and we yes. create a front that's good and we have to be really good in order to counter that fear that we're really bad so like we become this good and bad good and bad right and if and and we can't care for ourselves very well because we can't really love and care for the good because we know it's kind of fake and that we're really bad right so i feel like for me a lot of the plural work a lot of the trauma book work a lot of the work is about shifting from that model of like there's this fake goodness with this real badness underneath to like really challenging that like that can't be the case and that is challenging seeing that out there that people are either good or bad and also challenging seeing it in here like it's such a relief to recognize that you're not this perfect person that you've been presenting that's not really real but you're also not that fundamentally flawed terrible person that neoliberal capitalism tries to sell you that you are in order to buy products right Exactly. You're just a human. And, you know, there are a couple of questions about safety that I think segue really well from there. You know, there's a question about is it possible to create a feeling of safety and agency when we're fundamentally unsafe in the world we live in? And the other question is, what are some of the things people from sexual and gender minorities can do to take care of uh, ourselves and feel safe? And so I really, you know, that again, that's where the non-binary approach comes in and that all or nothing, right? If we think in all or nothing, uh, patterns then I'm either safe or unsafe but if yeah. we challenge that and we're like well I am maybe unsafe on a global level that is true on many levels however what are the relative contexts of safety that I have right mm-hmm. now I am safe in my home and my household and my um, you know closest group of folks and uh, relatively safe in my community so can there be degrees of safety and agency I do not necessarily have Mm. as much agency as people with more um, privileged identities in the world, but I do have a relative degree of agency. And so kind of challenging the soul or nothing patterns can really help us challenge also uh, safe and safe, powerful or powerless, right? There are lots mm. of there are lots of degrees of possibilities between powerless and powerful and between yeah. safe and unsafe for all of us, right? And that's why, and it links back to consent, because if we're, if consent yes. is about trying to be free, make ensure people are as, as free and as safe as possible, but recognizing that power imbalances between us and cultural scripts will make it hard for people to be free. No one's going to ever, ever be totally free and, con- and safe under a really non-consensual culture, but we can try our best to maximize 
our own freedom and safety and that of others in the ways that we can by kind of recognizing those power imbalances and their impact, recognizing the cultural scripts and offering alternatives. Absolutely, which goes back to this idea of none of us are free until all of us are free, which is very foundational to black liberation movement. And somebody has just asked a really poignant question about, I'm in the US, uh, me too, um, what effect will our November 3rd election have on safety for such people and how, much, and how may they care for themselves? That's a great question. I know that personally, um, maybe I shouldn't say this publicly, but I will. I know that personally, I do have a safety plan. I know that most folks, most trans folks, non-binary folks, folks of color have a safety plan. And also if we have more financial privilege, can we contribute to make, to ensuring that folks with less privilege, like black and brown and indigenous folks also have options. So I think it is an issue of interdependence. I think that folks with marginalized identities and experiences are very aware um, that what's going to happen on November 3rd um, is really crucial. And so once more, it's really, um, where's our web of interdependence and how can we not just think about our individual safety, the safety uh, of our families, including queer families, also the safety of our community, right? And and really noticing how all this fight, flight, freeze, fun responses come up in us and try to come back to breath, which is where we started, mm. right? Try to come back to this grounded place, try to come back to a relational place, try to really come back um, to all of these ideas we talked about and, and ask ourselves, how can we hold ourselves and one another in this um, incredibly uh, scary moment, which is not the first scary moment in the in US history, and what wisdom is out there that we can tap on? And also, how do our ancestral uh, stories impact us? Like, I'm very aware of how my people survived in Italy under fascism, and how that lives in my body. And am I going to follow the same ancestral patterns or different ancestral patterns, right? In terms of freeze and hide or flight or fight or, you know, and what is possible beyond those, right? Mm. Um, also knowing that those live in our body. I don't know if I'm making sense. So, I'll, I'll pause so there. much sense. I'm just aware of the time. I yeah. Think maybe we have to stop. Is that right? I Oksana? think we have one minute. Yeah. Do you want to say anything? One minute. <laughs> one mi- I'm very like to the minute kind of person. Sorry. These are our, these are our books that are already out there. <laughs> um, Oh, if you're going to share one of your solo books, that's one of my solo oh, books. Oh, yeah, you should. Comic, Absolutely. Comic books as well. Um, but yeah, um, it's been so great talking today. Thank you for your amazing questions. Um, yeah, it's been really great. Thank you for this conversation. It's been amazing. And uh, yes, I think that actually Oksana's put our websites also in the chat. And yes, if you want us to talk to you right now, we're on Zoom. So we can talk to anybody anywhere. Contact <laughs> us, right? <laughs> And uh, finally, the top tip, maybe from both of you or from one of you, how to stay embodied. Oh, that's one for Alex. (laughs) Wow, no pressure. I didn't know. I'm such a a newbie to being embodied at all. Okay, my my two top tips are always, I have two top tips. Breathe. There is always time to breathe. No matter how fast we're going, even if it's like, stop, take one breath. Like right that right now we we did that breathe and slow down. We cannot be embodied if we don't slow down. And I know we're breathing all the time, of course, from our first breath to our last breath. But even if we take three intentional breaths throughout our day, that that can really change your day. So slow down, breathe, and you're not alone. I'll add a third tip: you're not alone. Remember, <laughs> you might feel alone, but you're not alone. There's somebody somewhere in the world that can relate to what you're going through or some ancestor or a plant just outside or the sky or the earth. You're never alone. Slow down and breathe and remember connection.